Are you finished? You got another one. <laughs> another one is fine. What a beautiful song. I don't believe I've ever heard that, but if you're saved, I think you've probably asked yourself that question or you've come to that conclusion as you think about the life you used to live and the things you used to turn to. And then you look at your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the blessings and the grace that he has lived and brought into your life. And you say, who compares to you? How would the scripture answer that question? Who compares to God? Nobody, no one, no thing compares to God. But thank you for that beautiful song. Before we jump into Matthew 5, I just want to uh, thank you, congregation, for investing in our retreats. As I drove up to the church this morning, um, I just kind of chuckled to myself because everything is so nicely manicured and then walked in the church and everything is so nice and neat and put back into place. And just yesterday, everything was scattered everywhere. You could drive up to the church and you'd see games scattered all over the yard and people scattered all over the place and towels and bathing suits scattered everywhere, snacks and drink cups scattered everywhere, uh, whiffs of food scattered everywhere. So um, I just had to chuckle as I drove up this morning and I saw everything miraculously put back into order. Um, it's quite a transformation. But I want to thank you for, at, personally as the body of Christ, New Covenant Fellowship for your prayers and your support for the retreats, because I just want to assure you that God really meets uh, people that come to these retreats, the boys and the girls, the, the speakers that speak, they proclaim God's word. And I want to assure you that the people that come and attend and they're not just from our church, most actually are not from our church. Um, they are hearing the word of God and they are being led in spirit inspired worship. They're being loved on. They're being cared for by the leaders that are here. And so the fact that you are willing to invest and pray for and support through food, finances, whatever it is, just is um, is crucial for the ministry that takes place here during those weeks. A lot of you give in, in a lot of different ways. Um, so thank you so much for investing. We have people that leave their work to come and serve. Miss out on some hours, paid hours to come and serve at these retreats. And we're just very, very grateful. But I want to assure you that God is being honored and that the gospel is being proclaimed during these retreats. And on the side, they have fun and they sweat, they sing hard and they play hard. <clears throat> but God is glorified. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 5 and Jesus is preaching a sermon to those that would come after him, to those that have decided or perhaps are contemplating, should I follow this man who seems to be, or at least says he is, the Messiah? And he's preaching a sermon, and eventually he comes around to talking about the law of God, and he wants to make sure, he wants to make sure that those that are considering following him have a firm grasp on what the law means, what the commandments of God mean to them, if they would call themselves people of the kingdom and the way that the people of God in that day read and understood something as simple as the Ten Commandments that had been around 
for generations, for millennia. It's not always exactly the original intent that God had in mind when he said the thou shalt not. So Jesus is bringing some very needed clarification regarding the laws of God. And I think he brings it to the church today. I think we always need the clarification of what God has in mind when he speaks these very, very important commandments that are binding on all men everywhere. We looked at this commandment of murder. That's the first one that Jesus talks about. Thou shalt not murder. And we found that it's not just a matter of making it through the day without actually killing somebody. Though for some that might be a challenge. For others it's a not. So there's no need for us to walk out of here and celebrate and high five each other after church over the fact that we walked out of here without strangling somebody or killing anybody because that's not exactly the whole of what the commandment means. And so Jesus talks to us and says it, uh, it also goes into, of course, our hearts. Anger. Have you ever been unrighteously angry at anybody? Has that ever risen out of you? If so, you've defiled this commandment. How about calling people names? How about just looking down at people, sneering at them or thinking that you're higher than them or they're nothings or nobodies. Have you ever looked at any race or at any other human being in that way as if they're lesser than you? That's a break. That's a break of this command. When we break God's commands, they break us. And sometimes we might think that it seems silly to talk about this stuff because no, most of us here. Hopefully all of us have not broken this commandment in the physical way as far as murder. We might say, I'm really not even tempted to kill anybody. I just haven't ever gotten to that point to where I actually would raise the knife and kill anybody. And I usually refrain my name calling to more milder names. I keep my anger to myself. I try to I have my little temper tantrums in here and nobody ever sees them. So what harm does it do? That's kind of the if we are still thinking along those terms that we don't need to be transformed by this commandment, we're still not understanding it. Well, Jesus is going to take it even deeper this morning into the heart. He's going to he's going to move it. We're still talking about the context to still this command. He hasn't moved on to the next one. And there's we'll look at six in this sermon. So this is still within the context of of. As opposed to murdering people, the exact opposite, absolutely loving, adoring and cherishing and filling people with life to the best of our ability. He's going to bring this idea into the realm of relationships, something that we all have in our lives. When you become of a what he's going to remind us of, if you become of a relate, you become aware of a relationship in your life that is that is ailing, that's sick, that the life is being sapped out of in some kind of way. It's broken, it's cut off. If you are aware of that in your life, then he's going to challenge us to do whatever is within our power to make that right. Within the context of this command. So let's read verses 21 through 26 in, in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He's talking about the opposite of death is life. And the life that he's talking about now is relational life. The life in the relationships that we have. The acquaintances that we have. The, the sphere of our life. And so mending the relationships is in the context of murder and its opposite. Of course, the opposite is wanting to cherish life. So Jesus is taking this commandment. And he's sifting it through our minds as we wrestle with it. And he sifts it all the way down to that place where where things happen. It's the heart to that place where attitudes and opinions are formed to the place where the fountain begins between love and hatred. All of that happens in our hearts, how we deal with people, how we look at people, whether or not we love or hate people. It's all a matter of our heart. And of course, you know, by now, if you have been here any length of time, that this is a problem for us because of the fall. And because of the fall, because sin has not just entered into this world, but entered into this heart and entered into that heart, our bent, our proclivity is toward evil, is toward hatred. We may not like to see ourselves in that light, but that's how Scripture looks at us. And hopefully we know that about ourselves. Our hearts are prone to grow bad, yucky things. And if we don't deal with the bad, yucky things that want to grow in our hearts down there in the basement, they're going to come on up to the first floor and they're going to wreak havoc in our lives and in the lives of others. And so Jesus is doing us the gospel favor, the gracious favor of of warning us to guard these things that are precious in our lives, to guard our own hearts. And he knows that our hearts deal with this kind of stuff every day. Does a day go by where even if we are not in contact with another human being, maybe we're on a retreat or something, does a day go by where we do not think about some kind of person and the relationship we have with them? Or something that we've heard on the news, something that we have read about a certain people group or or somebody we passed on the highway. Our minds are always formulating opinions and judgments and affections or the lack thereof. And so we have to be on guard every day about sneers, about grudges, about things that are said and done and Because these things come our way every day, it's a part of the world that God has created for us. 
And because we are prone and we are bent to not be so kind, whether it's internally or externally, we have to know how to deal with these things. We have to know how to heal our hearts, how to what are the resources that God has given us to deal with the thoughts that enter into our minds. We have to know how to keep our relationships on life support, if you will, in light of this. It's not silly, and it's not something that does not apply to us. If we are beatific in light of the beatitudes that we have looked at, if we are beatific people, if we are kingdom people, these things will matter to us. If we're kingdom people, any lovelessness in our hearts will matter to us, will care Enough to want to do something about it. Jesus is saying. Any seed. Not just the actual act. But any seed that is harbored in our heart is very dangerous. And needs to be cared for. Needs to be taken to the cross. Needs to be repented of. Because seed form of sin. Is just a matter of time before it grows. If it's not dealt with. And turns into some kind of harmful action. It's already harmful just as the seed. That's the point. It's not safe. In our hearts. He says I forbid. I forbid anything. For you to allow anything to grow without being dealt with. That's the idea of keeping this command. Because it's only a matter of time. For it to grow. If we're just going to keep it there. Because that's what seeds do. You plant something in the garden. When that sun starts shining, when it finally starts raining or whatever, when the conditions are right for the sin, sins have certain conditions, just like soil, that they grow in best. Sometimes it's just a matter of time where we find ourselves in a certain condition where that sin's going to come out. So we got to take that grudge, that little grudge, and deal with it. If you think about your lives, you think about your walk. You think about what is the worst thing you've ever done in your life. We all know what it is for us. What is the worst thing that you've ever done in your life? The reason you did that was because there was a little seed. It was in seed form at one time in your heart. And you didn't check it. We didn't guard it. We didn't stomp on the head of the snake. We let it grow. We deceived ourselves into thinking it's okay, I'm in control. And the very worst thing that we have ever done in our lives was done because of the seed in our heart. So this is how serious it is. And how gracious gracious it is of Christ to deal with us on this level. Because he knows down there that's where the fountain is. Begin so that, yeah, this passage is close and personal It's because it's the kind of thing that happens every day to us as we form opinions, grudges. Human relationships constantly need fixing. Are you married? Human relationships constantly need fixing. You don't just come up to the altar and you're deeply in love and you say, I do. 
and it's smooth sailing from there on out because your love just carries you through. Human relationships need fixing. John Piper says, despising your brother imperils your soul. Jesus did talk about the flames of hell in this passage. Despising a person through acts like murder, despising a person through attitudes like anger, despising a person through words like raka or fool, they all imperil your soul, says Piper. So what do we do? What, what do we do with our relationships? How do we cherish life? Well, what Jesus says in this passage is the way this is done on a practical level. Is in, in essence, you, you transform or no, you, you postpone one act of worship or one form of worship and worship me in this way. And then you come back and you continue to worship me in this way. So you postpone the offering that you had for me and you go reconcile with your brother or your sister and then you come back. So it's all within the sphere of worship. It's just a different form of worship. Verse 23. If you're offering your gift on the altar, you remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, I want you to know that in this context, what Jesus is saying is really, really impractical and inconvenient. Because in that day and time... There was one place that you went to worship the God. To God, it was one temple, one altar. That's all that was permitted in the economy of divine worship. There were no satellite churches. You couldn't just say, "I'm going to sit here and worship God at my computer. I'm going to listen to my pastor on my computer." If you wanted to make an offering to the Lord, there was only one legitimate place to do that. And not every person of God lived right there where the temple was in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is preaching the sermon, he's not in Jerusalem. He's talking to a people in Galilee, days journey away. So he's saying, when you go, this is what should take place. Very, very inconvenient. So you had to plan these kind of journeys. Now, because it was inconvenient, I, I assume, um, not to climb into God's head and tell him why he did things. But we do know in Scripture that his people were not required to go every Sunday or every Sabbath day to offer their sacrifices. There were only certain times of the year, certain festivals that it was mandatory. You could go any time you desired and offer free will offering. Nothing held you back from the temple, but you were only required to go a certain amount of times throughout the year. So you had to plan your trip. Most people had to plan their time and they had to plan a trip. And, yeah, they had to they had to take time off of work. I mean, they might be leaving at a crucial time where they've got lots of things that are undone. You, we, we don't control our lives. You know how it is. Maybe you left your house this morning and there was lots of things you just didn't have done that needed to be accomplished. So they had to plan it. They had to work around it. And sometimes it could be convenient for some. It was a very long journey to get to the temple. It could have been, man, I got the kids. They cried the whole time, but finally I made it. Or, well, it was too hot this year. It was too cold this year. My camel got a flat tire. It was a terrible experience. But finally I made it to the temple. 
And here I am. And I am so ready. It's been a while and I'm just so ready to reconcile with my God. I'm so ready to worship God. Pour my heart out to Him. Gladly give Him this offering. And this sacrifice that I have. And Jesus is saying when you get to that point and you come and you're just ready to be rightly related to God. And you know in your heart and your mind that there are other relationships where you are not rightly related because of an offense. Maybe you did something to offend somebody. Whatever. Here's what I want you to do. Just leave your offering there. Get your friend to hold your sacrifice. Put it in the hock. Whatever. And go to whoever that brother and sister is. And get it right with them. Reconcile with them. And then come back. Pick up where we left off. And present your offering to me. But I just got here, Lord. I made this trip. I don't really want to do that. What about the just me and God thing? Doesn't it just what really matters is just that I'm rightly related to you? Have you ever thought that to yourself? As long as I'm rightly related to God, I'm in good standing with God. If that was true, if it was if all I had to do was be rightly related with God, then I don't think we would have this passage in Scripture. Apparently, it's important to God that we be rightly related to others. Of course, it makes perfect sense if you think of what the way God created the universe and people and relationships are very important to God. We were created to be in community and relationship. That's our future in heaven. It's not just cloud walking. The glory of God will be incredible. It will be the the greatest power. I mean, we struggle with energy today. Nuclear power, coal, fuel, fossil fuels, and electricity, and solar power, and everything. You'll see power when you get to heaven. God's power will illuminate it. But it will be a place where we will have relationships because God created relationships as a blessing for us. It's one of the ways that He blesses us. So it is very important. To God. As a matter of fact, it's so important, it's so urgent that no matter how inconvenient it was or is, Jesus still says, Go. Fix it. You, you got to keep life in your relationships. You, you, you can't afford another day for it to sit there and fester. You don't know at what level that seed has grown to, you don't know what could come. Out of this, in just a few more hours, a few more days, a few more weeks, I want you to go right now and fix it, reconcile it. Because that's how people in my kingdom live. That's how people in my kingdom deal with one another in the midst of their imperfections. In the midst of the sin that still comes their way and crosses their mind and wants to rise up. From the fountain of the heart. This is how we do it. And maintain loving, gracious, humble, godly relationships. So stop the poison. 
Now, I would imagine that if someone did make that trip, of course, he's in Galilee given this message. But I would imagine it would really only you'd only have to learn a lesson one time, especially if you came many days journey. Got to, oh, man, I forgot to get right with my brother again. I got to go all the way back. I don't have enough gas. I would think that hopefully this would be a lesson that they would learn pretty quickly. Hopefully it would be a, a lesson that we as the body of Christ today would learn. That if, we're going, if we know Sunday's coming, we know we're going to have an opportunity to worship God. We know we're going to devote our hearts to Him. Maybe rededicate ourselves to Him. We're going to stand up and worship Him. Pour our hearts out to Him. You would think that we would know that if we are not right in our relationships and we haven't done anything at least to get the ball rolling, that we are in error. That we would learn before we come before the Lord that our human relationships are very important to Him. Reconciliation. Reconciliation means to uh, to make peace, to bring that harmony back into the relationship. And it means uh, to do what is within your power to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean that if the offense was great or may take some time to work through that we're BFFs immediately. If I repent, um, I believe the the BMT conference that we went to. The definition was a mutual consent of mutual repentance and mutual confession. So that we are, the, the, the offense is removed. Maybe we're not BFFs again, but at least the offense is removed. We can look each other in the eye. We, we have clean hearts. We've repented if we need to repent. We've forgiven if we need to forgive. And we are in right standing in that sense. Reconciliation. So how do I figure all this out? How do I know if there's something in my heart that is displeasing to the Lord? How do I know for sure if there's a relationship that needs to be mended? Well, most of us pretty much can answer that question. We know the relationships in our lives that are ailing, that need some oxygen breathed into them pretty quick, or they're just going to die. But we might not know that or we might be confused. Timothy Keller offers us six signs that reconciliation needs to take place. And uh, if you're anything like me, you'll find yourself in all seven of them. Just being honest. So here's one, just some signs and they, they do kind of build, but they're not necessarily in order. And there is some overlap. First sign, when you feel yourself getting cold-hearted toward a relationship, just doesn't burn as warmly as it did. You're letting it cool off. You're not pursuing it like you once did. You're not guarding it. You're not making sure things aren't said that you kind of might know, well, that might offend. You're just letting things go. Um Maybe even a sneer here and there where before you wouldn't dream of sneering or having a haughty attitude against somebody else. But you're you're just kind of the beginning stages. You're beginning something about you. You're beginning to pull away. Beginning to let the fire go out. Second, 
Um, you hear a person, this person uh, is having problems or facing something, and you're okay with it. You're not as sympathetic as you once were. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe their house isn't selling. Um, maybe they're out of work. And ordinarily, you, you should feel very sad and sympathetic and just doesn't bother you like it, like it used to. Maybe you're even kind of glad to hear it because your feelings for that person has changed. Third, the irritation test. How about this one? The person just begins to irritate you. What they say, how they act. I mean, you just start picking out things you never noticed before about them. But because your heart's not right with them, you're noticing every little flaw. And it may not even be a big deal, but it is to you. Anybody else could have said that or acted like that and it just would have gone right over your head. But because this person did it or said it the way they did this or whatever, it just really bothers you. That extra sensitivity or hypersensitivity to flaws. And as a result of that, you begin to lose respect. You begin to perhaps even disdain them. Fourth. Actually, he probably could have started with this one, but he says, fourth, just awkwardness. Um, you, you know something isn't right between you. you just being, you, you know, you've walked up to somebody and there they are and you should be glad to see them and you shake hands or whatever. But there's an awkwardness there. You kind of both know nah, something isn't right here. Maybe something happened in the, in the past. Unpleasant to be around them. Fifth, avoidance. Avoidance. So now you're actually avoiding them. And you come to church, oh, where are they sitting? I'm sitting in the back if they're sitting in the front. Or I'm sitting in the where I'm, I want to be far away. I don't really want to make eye contact. I don't like that awkwardness. If they go in the front door, I'm just going to slip in the back. Or you, or you see them at Walmart or wherever. And duck around the aisle real quick. I don't want to have to deal with this person. I'm, I'm avoiding them. I'm walking around them. I'm, I'm organizing my life around having to deal with this relationship, deal with this person. So avoidance. Six. When you can pass along negative information about them to somebody else and actually take joy in it. I'm sorry I have to tell you this about such and such. But did you know? And there's a flaw, there's a weakness, and it may even be true. Did you know what happened to them? Do you know what they said? Did you know what they did? Do you know how they parent? Do you know why they're in the situation you do? And, and you like exposing their faults. As a matter of fact, it just brings you a sense of joy. And then seventh and last, he th says, things have elevated to the point where you are not just avoiding each other, talking behind each other's back, but you are just cut off. You have defriended them, unfriended them, whatever social media terminology is. You, you deleted them off your Facebook. You, you're, you're avoiding them. You don't want anything to do with them. 
And if you happen, though you try so hard not to run into them, if you happen to, sparks can fly. Because it's just always there. Something, the, the, the enmity, the hatred, the disdain, the disrespect, it's always there. And you haven't dealt with it. And so now if you just are faced with it, sparks are going to fly. And this happens. Now in a small community, I'm sure you know of people, individuals, where... You know, they don't get along. Oh, no, such and such both showed up at the same place at the same time. I'm getting out of here because you know it's going to happen. Small communities, you don't get away with that. What's that static coming from? Can I just hear it? Is everybody? Okay, I'm all right. It's not upsetting me at all. Just happened to notice it. So this is a, a cutoff thing. This is feud. And how it happens out in the community, does it happen in churches? Does it happen among Christians? Yeah. Does it happen in this church? Yeah. Happens in this church. You mean there have been families within the same church that have feuded? Families that have avoided one another? People that have avoided one another? Have talked badly about one another? All seven steps? Yeah, absolutely. Happens in churches. Happens within Christians' lives. Has happened, perhaps is happening in this church. As I speak. So we see how crucial this can be and why Jesus is saying, look, this is a part of kingdom living. This is the kind of thing you can't afford to just let go. It's not... Something you can put in your junk email box and never think about it again. And, and if we never learn how to reconcile, this is the kind of life we're going to live. This is what our lives and our relationships turn into. If we don't learn how to repair them through forgiveness and repair them through repentance, which means bringing change. Stop doing the thing that is offending one another. This is what it can look like. People running. Running from relationships. Purposing not to go into a certain place because you're going to wait for that person to finish in it. And then you're going to go in. And it can, it can rule our lives instead of Christ ruling our lives. If we're not careful to guard our hearts, these little seeds of lovelessness. If we do not look after them. Then eventually, though, people that perhaps aren't so important to our lives, okay, I can afford to do without that. If we don't learn how to get down and do this as Christ is instructing us, then even the people that we love the most will become the people that we will avoid. Will become the people that we don't really even care to be around. So we think about as we as we reconcile, we try to make sense out of this. We want to get it straight as we think about our marriages, as we think about our families, as we think about our dearest, closest brothers and sisters in Christ. The kingdom is built on relationship. What kind of relationship? The kingdom is built on covenant relationship, unbreakable, lasting, totally committed and devoted relationship 
that is so important that it's more important than our hurt feelings. It's more important than offenses. It's more important that the e of, uh, than the evil that we will face in each other. It's a covenant relationship. That's what Jesus is saying the kingdom is built on. And of course, we are in relationship with God. How? Through a covenant relationship. And that means that no matter what you do to offend him, he is going to deal with you on the basis of grace and forgiveness. So that's the foundation that the kingdom is built upon. It's a foundation, if you will, that a kingdom outpost is built upon, that a church is built upon. Filial devotion, integrity, sacrificial commitment. Will it cost? Of course it will. When does the Christian life not cost in one way or another? In every sphere, in every realm, the most beautiful, loving realms, there is sacrifice required to maintain it. It's built on that kind of character, the kind of character that Jesus is trying to build into his people through the Sermon on the Mount. Stay tight. Make sure people are well loved. Make sure people are well cared for and safe. Cherish the blessings of relationship that I have brought into your life. Because what can bless you the most in this life, in this earth, other than God, is human relationships. There's absolutely nothing else, no material, no amount of money, no latest even tool that can bless you as much as just a good, solid human relationship and preferably more than one. No matter what it takes, Jesus says, no matter what it takes. Our tendency, if we don't allow ourselves to be instructed by the gospel, is just make let them fall off. It's too hard. That's all of the flesh hurts too much. I can never find it within my heart to forgive or let things go. I can never confess. And so we let things go and they fall apart. I know there are people in this room this morning that have had dear friends at one time and now you're enemies. People that we we perhaps grew up with and were best friends with. People that we cried with to the point where our eyes hurt. People that we laugh with to the point where I don't make me laugh anymore because my stomach hurts. Those people that we thought we could never, ever hate. If we do not apply these principles to the relationships in our lives, in our marriages, in our family, in our communities, in our church, they will fall apart. And we will be cut off. We've got to crush it. We've got to kill it. The stuff that bites at our heels every day. This is in the context of kingdom living. You want to know what it means to be a child of God? You want to know what it means to belong to a church? You want to know what is my meaning and my purpose and where am I going? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? How about having relationships like this? What separates us from the world? How do we react in the world before Christ? I didn't do this before Christ. Cross me. 
just write you off my list. There's plenty of other people. It's not at all. It doesn't even, it's not even on my radar. This idea of humble myself, ask your forgiveness for my offense. It's a whole lot easier. What separates us from the world but our love for one another? That's not all natural, gushy love. How can Jesus say that that's how his church is going to act? And they're going to be noticeable from everybody else on planet Earth because of the way they love one another. It's based on this kind of love. It's based on gospel love, which means they're going to forgive one another. You know that you have to forgive in order to love and to maintain that level of relationship. But what if it's not my fault? What if... What if the, the other person in this relationship, and I'm thinking about five, some of you might be thinking, I've got five people in mind right now. And what if it's not my fault? Mostly, mostly it was their fault. And if they have not, if they didn't do this or say this, I would have never blown my temper. I would have never said what I did. Or I would, I would not have these feelings in my heart. Take whatever portion is yours and own it and repent. Ten percent? Ten percent? Own it. Own it. We're, we're, we're not flawless. We're not fault free. We can't repent for anybody else's sin. We can repent for our attitude, our opinions, our ungodly judgments, our grudges, our sneers, our disdain. Whatever comes from our fountain and out of our heart, that's what we need to repent of. And it's not Repentance is not when you go and say, look, I want you to know how sorry I am that you offended me this way. Because if you hadn't offended me and said what you did, I would never be have to stand before you and say what I'm humbly saying before you right now. How sorry I am that I slashed your tires. But if you never if you hadn't backed that into my car in the first place, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. That's not repentance. Repentance means change. Repentance says, look, I have no excuse. The feelings I have came from my own heart and mind. And they're wrong. And what I did to you or the the, the way I thought about you was just wrong. It was ungodly. And I am very sorry. And I confess it to you. And I repent. And repentance means change. And because I know that it's offended you, here's what I'm going to do about it. As a matter of fact, I'm even open to suggestions. I'm open to suggestions. What can I do so this doesn't happen again? Because we can't be broken. We've got to be tight. We've got to care about this. I'm going to do this. The more we understand the gospel, the less we are able to remain in sin. Understanding the gospel is not an impetus to be free to sin. If if we are harboring this kind of stuff, we're not really understanding the gospel. Because if we understood what Christ did for us In his forgiveness, his acts of reconciliation, pursuing us at all costs, 
then we wouldn't act as if we were not in the kingdom. As if there wasn't such a thing as the gospel. Undeserved grace. Undeserved mercy. The more we stay in sin, the more we stay angered at people, the less we understand the gospel. It's just evidence of the fruit of our understanding. The world says return evil for evil, not the gospel. Forgiveness means I release the wrong. I know, I know you've heard this before. You've offended me. You've hurt me. It's real. It's painful. I've lost sleep, lost money, whatever. I've lost my peace in my heart. You robbed me of it. Now I have anxiety. I can hardly free myself. Forgiveness means at my expense and at my cost and at my pain and at my hurt, I release you. I no longer hold you in bondage. I will absorb it so you can go free. Isn't that how Christ deals with us? Can you imagine? Would you want to come here and worship a God that is just going to put before your face a list of all the offenses that he is holding against you? What kind of relationship is that? But because we are sinners, the only way we can relate to God is by grace. And that's the way he relates to us. It's kingdom living. Are we a kingdom people? Is this how we do life? Is this how we worship God in our marriages? Or we just let things kind of stay there at a manageable level of sin? Is that what God wants for our marriages? As long as we're not strangling each other at the end of the day, is it okay to secretly hate each other in our hearts? That's not God's plan for marriage. That's not the picture of Christ's love for his church. And submission, the honor and the respect do. Is this how we worship God in our families? You ever been in an awkward situation where you know you walked into it and relationships aren't right in a family and you want to walk right back out the door? Whoa, came in at a bad time, did I? Is this what God wants for us our, as brothers and sisters in Christ? Friends, we're doing family together. Our kids are growing up together. Listen to what Timothy Keller says. And actually, I'm going to I'm going to close with point one. I'm not going to go on to two and three. We'll do that next time, maybe. He says, honestly, repentance and forgiveness are by far the most important thing. In a marriage, in spite of incompatibilities, in spite of of different backgrounds, in spite of different temperaments, all that sort of thing. If you know how to repent and you know how to forgive in Christ, you're both doing it regularly. You can have an incredibly great marriage. It's so unbelievably important 
But it's also true for friendship, for everything. Those are the two tools. You see? What gives us the things that we long for, the things that we were created to have in, in, in relationships in the midst of a broken world? Repentance and forgiveness. Loving God and caring for God so much that we will do whatever it takes to have these kind of relationships that honor Him and that bring joy. We're rewarded for our own work. Bring joy to our hearts. Let me close not with Keller's quote, false alarm. Close with Piper's quote. I'm trying to figure out a good place to stop here because uh, right now is a right now is a real good time to stop. So here's what we'll say with Piper: If contempt for a brother or sister imperils your soul. If it threatens to cut you off from God forever, then you can't just come happily on your way to worship. It is unlikely that God would receive the offering of your worship while you despise your brother in your heart. Can I just ask that we take this to heart? I mean, this is to us. We take this to heart and allow God's living and active word to seep into our hearts and transform them. Think about it deeply. This is, didn't know it, but this is part one. We'll do part ne- uh, two next time. And, and hear some more and bring, come back around to it. Let's honor the Lord with our relationships. May God bless the preaching of his word.